Welcome to the June 4th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the impact of sickle cell disease on the bone marrow vascular niche, learn more about the evolution of retrovirus-infected premalignant T-cell clones in adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma, and assess the outcomes following hematopoietic cell transplantation for Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Pathologic Angiogenesis in the Bone Marrow of Humanized Sickle Cell Mice is Reversible by Blood Transfusion by Shin-Yong Park from Boston Children's Hospital and colleagues. The study was co-led by Leslie Silberstein, also from Boston Children's, and Lucia De Franceschi from the University of Verona, Italy. Epidemiological projections point to an increased global burden of sickle cell disease between 2010 and 2050. In the United States, an estimated 100,000 individuals are affected by sickle cell disease. Chronic hemolytic anemia and acute vaso-occlusive crisis are the main clinical manifestations, which can lead to acute and chronic pain as well as tissue ischemia or infarction. These complications have a major impact on morbidity and mortality. To date, the only curative option for sickle cell disease has been marrow transplantation. Prior research has established that the vasculature has a central role in regulating hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell homeostasis and lodgement in the bone marrow. Currently, little is known about the potential effect of sickle cell disease on the marrovascular microenvironments. However, imaging and histopathology are suggestive of abnormal angiogenesis in the brain of sickle cell patients with moyamoya disease, and recent studies have reported an increase in pro-angiogenic factors in peripheral blood of sickle cell disease patients. Researchers postulate that several events may account for obstruction in the microcirculation and hypoxia-mediated cellular damage that leads to a strong pro-angiogenic stimulus. These include the polymerization of hemoglobin S and the generation of dense red cells in heterothrombi of red cells and neutrophils. To further clarify whether sickle cell disease affects the vascular microenvironment, Park and colleagues characterized, for the first time, the pathologic features of bone marrow vasculature in humanized sickle cell mice. They employed 2D laser scanning cytometry, 3D whole mount confocal imaging and intravital imaging to analyze sinusoidal and arteriolar microenvironments throughout the bone marrow cavity. They additionally characterized other pathophysiological features of the marrow using flow cytometry and immunoblot analysis. The investigators found that mice with sickle cell disease have distinctively abnormal and disorganized marrow vasculature they observed increased numbers of highly tortuous arterioles in the marrow cavity and fragmented sinusoidal vessels filled with aggregates of myeloid and erythroid cells. In addition, in vivo imaging revealed that transfused wild-type red blood cells had significantly slower intravascular flow speed in sickle cell marrow vasculature than in control marrow. 
Interestingly, sickle cell bone marrow had increased production of reactive oxygen species in expanded erythroblast populations and elevated levels of hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha, a transcription factor involved in regulation of several redox-sensitive genes. A closer examination of extracellular factors in the marrow from sickle cell mice found increased levels of pro-angiogenic growth factors VEGFA, ANG1, and ANG2. Higher levels of VCAM1, a marker of inflammatory vessel activation, was also detected in both bone marrow extracellular fluid and plasma from mice with sickle cell disease. These findings point to increased hypoxia-induced signaling in the bone marrow of sickle cell mice that leads to local induction of angiogenesis via pro-angiogenic mediators. Importantly, transplantation of sickle cell marrow cells into myeloablated wild-type mice resulted in recapitulation of the sickle cell disease vascular phenotype. This was associated with a decrease in the perivascular cells that produce the important niche chemokine CXCL12. However, when sickle cell disease mice were placed on a six-week blood transfusion regimen to attain hemoglobin S levels of less than 30%, a complete reversal of the abnormal bone marrow vasculature was observed, pointing to the plasticity of the vascular niche. Taken together, these data outline the cellular and molecular events that further diminish local oxygen availability and facilitate aberrant vessel growth in sickle cell disease. In an accompanying commentary, Mark Walter from UC San Francisco Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland, California, noted that this study also has compelling implications for allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation and autologous gene-modified cell transplantation for sickle cell disease. It is already known that graft rejection occurs much more frequently following allotransplant in sickle cell than in hematological malignancies. Serendipitously, the routine use of preventative exchange red cell transfusions before transplant has recently been adopted in clinical protocols for sickle cell disease as a way of reducing the risk of vasoocclusive events. The ability of red cell transfusions to favorably alter the sickle marrow milieu, as demonstrated by Park et al. in the sickle cell mouse model, could promote engraftment of hematopoietic cells and thus may be an added benefit of pre-transplant transfusion in sickle cell disease. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Evolution of Retrovirus-Infected Premalignant T-Cell Clones Prior to Adult T-Cell Leukemia Lymphoma Diagnosis by Aileen Rowan from Imperial College London and colleagues. In this study, Rowan et al. aimed to identify the drivers of the oncogenic process in adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma, or ATL, an aggressive hematological malignancy. ATL is typically preceded by a decades-long infection with human T-cell leukemia virus type 1, also known as HTLV1, a retrovirus that infects T-cells and spreads via sexual contact, breastfeeding, blood transfusions, or needle sharing. The HTLV1 virus is most common in the Caribbean, Japan, and certain parts of Africa and South and Central America. At present, it is believed that less than 5% of HTLV1 virus-infected individuals go on to develop ATL, but physicians have no way of predicting who is at greater risk. 
Approximately 60% of ATL cases are aggressive subtypes with poor prognosis and a median overall survival of 8 to 10 months. Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, is the only potentially curative treatment for aggressive ATL, but it is complicated by lack of available donors and early disease progression. Even those patients who undergo allogeneic HCT frequently relapse. Early detection of premalignant stages in high-risk individuals could provide early intervention opportunities, as well as allow for a timely planning of allogeneic HCT before the disease progresses to aggressive chemorefractory ATL. In this longitudinal study, investigators postulated that the key to discovering premalignant changes lies in the detection of unique infected T-cell clones that circulate and persist in HTLV-1 individuals for many years before transforming to malignant forms. They used targeted sequencing to track the evolution of malignant clones in a small group of individuals from whom serial blood samples had been banked and who developed ATL 2 to 10 years later. All six studied patients had an HTLV-1 proviral load of greater than 4% at all time points tested, which is associated with a high risk of ATL. Blood samples from 55 ATLV-1 infected individuals with comparable provirus loads who did not develop ATL during the follow-up period were used as controls. An unexpected but welcome finding was that the investigators were able to detect clones of premalignant HTLV-1-infected cells in the blood of studied patients up to 10 years before they developed acute and lymphoma subtype ATL. In addition, they found that the total number and variant allele fraction of mutations increased six months before diagnosis. A closer look at the mutational burden revealed that peripheral blood mononuclear cells from premalignant cases at one year prediagnosis had a significantly higher mutational burden in genes frequently mutated in ATL compared to those cases who remained ATL-free for 10 years. Genomic DNA sequencing identified a median of 112 single nucleotide variants per tumor. PLCG1 was the most frequently mutated gene with four mutations discovered in tumors from three patients. In 50% of tumors, mutations were found in the following four genes, PRKCB, CCR4, TP53, and NOTCH1. The key finding from this eye-opening study is that clonally expanded premalignant cells bearing ATL driver mutations can be detected in the blood of individuals who go on to develop ATL, but not in age and viral load-matched asymptomatic individuals who did not develop ATL. This finding could have a profound impact on early detection as well as early intervention and management of ATL. Another interesting finding was that ATL driver mutations were associated with ATL-like oligoclonality, which could potentially serve as a biomarker of transformation. In an accompanying commentary, Lee Ratner from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis noted that these findings are a huge step forward in defining a prognostic index for ATL and provide opportunities for new therapeutic advances. They also beg several important questions, including which mutations are most relevant, whether it is possible to develop a sensitive and specific prognostic assay for ATL, 
And most importantly, can ATL be prevented through early identification and treatment of individuals harboring ATL driver mutations? If a prognostic assay for ATL could indeed be developed based on genomic information, one wonders whether similar prognostic assays can also be developed for other leukemias and lymphomas. Lastly, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Excellent Outcomes Following Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation for Wiscott-Aldrich Syndrome, a PIDTC report by Lori Burrows from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle and her colleagues in the Primary Immunodeficiency Treatment Consortium. In this interesting report, Burroughs et al. present the outcomes of 129 patients with Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome who underwent hematopoietic cell transplantation between 2005 and 2015. Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, also referred to as WAS, is a rare X-linked disease caused by mutations in the WAS gene, characterized by eczema, thrombocytopenia, immune deficiency, and recurrent infections. The WAS protein is expressed only by hematopoietic cells, with the exception of mature red blood cells. It has been established that the WAS protein plays an important role in the transduction of signals from cell surface receptors to the actin cytoskeleton, in remodeling of the actin cytoskeleton, and formation and stability of the immunologic synapse between T cells and B cells. In individuals harboring a WAS gene mutation, disease symptoms usually first appear in early infancy and, without hematopoietic cell transplantation, life expectancy is about 15 to 20 years. At present, hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, performed in infancy and early childhood is the only potentially curative approach for this debilitating disease. The outcomes of patients undergoing HCT for WAS have improved over time, particularly for those receiving transplants from HLA-matched siblings and unrelated donors. This latest retrospective study by Burroughs and colleagues aimed to identify the factors influencing outcomes in a large series of patients undergoing HCT in North America between 2005 and 2015. The median patient age was 1.2 years, and most patients received myeloablative busulfan-based conditioning of varying intensity prior to HCT. 22 patients had HLA-matched sibling donors, 21 had HLA-matched unrelated donors, 2 had matched unrelated donors, and 39 received unrelated cord blood transplants. The 5-year overall survival, or OS, was 91%, with a median follow-up of 4.5 years. In line with previous studies, investigators found that patients who were younger than 5 years of age at the time of HCT had a 94% 5-year overall survival, significantly longer than patients who were 5 or older at hematopoietic cell transplantation, where OS was 66%. A somewhat surprising finding was that OS was not influenced by conditioning intensity or donor type. In fact, a 90% 5-year OS in patients who received unrelated cord blood transplants demonstrated that cord blood transplants are a good alternative to HLA-matched sibling and HLA-matched unrelated transplants. Interestingly, Conditioning intensity was found to be associated with donor T-cell and myeloid engraftment post-HCT. 
namely those patients who received fludarabine, melphalan-based, reduced-intensity regimens, were more likely to have less than 50% donor chimerism early after the procedure. Furthermore, investigators found that the degree of donor myeloid engraftment correlated with platelet counts, with higher platelet counts observed in those recipients who achieved full compared to low-level myeloid engraftment. Less than 50% donor engraftment was associated with inferior platelet counts post-hematopoietic cell transplantation. The authors concluded that HCT at a younger age continues to be associated with superior outcomes, adding further evidence in support of early transplantation for WAS. In an accompanying commentary, Tafan Gungor from University Children's Hospital Zurich noted that this latest study presents a compelling case for early hematopoietic cell transplantation. Because risk scores and disease burden increase with age, very young patients with WAS typically do better after HCT. Gungor also highlighted the impressive 90% five-year OS in patients who received unrelated cord blood transplants, adding that infants and very young children who were likely cytomegalovirus-free and have less disease burden could benefit from this approach. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.